Well, hey, good morning. How's everyone doing? Welcome to the last day of Unity Christian Music Festival. It's great to be here. Was anyone at Unity this weekend? Love it. Was it a good time? Heard it was great. Um, heard it was an awesome time, but uh, I'm a little biased. But man, aren't we just blessed with the music at our church? And um, certainly it's no, no competition, but just thankful for the people who faithfully lead us with their gifts. But more importantly, it's not about them, right? That we as a church, every time that we come together, what a gift it is to worship, right? To lift high his name, to sing his praises, that we're not here to consume. We are here to participate. We are here, just like we sang, to join in the song of praise that is going on right now in heaven. What a, what a great thing. Every, every weekend together is a gift, isn't it? Love to be here in God's house. So happy you're here. Um, if, if I haven't met you yet, my name's Taylor. I'm the worship pastor here at Harvest. And um, are you guys ready to open God's word? I think we're a lot ready, more ready to do that than to hear me make cheesy jokes. So um, if you're unfamiliar uh, with what we do here at Harvest in this portion of the service, for, for about 30 to 40 minutes, we open this book, the Bible. And generally we park at one passage and we dig deep into it break it down, and we allow for it to say what it says, to mean what it means, that we would live what we're called to live, right? That we hold high the authority of this book, God's revealed, inspired, perfect word given to us to know and understand God, and also to know and understand how we are called to live. So as we seek in this time to allow this word to be what we place ourselves beneath and what we stand upon as we live. Let's pray, and, um, and then we'll b- dig into the book of Jonah, and you can turn there. Um, maybe even now as I'm praying, it's okay to open your Bible and flip the pages. Let's pray, and we'll dig in there. Father, um, what a gift it is to once again to be gathered as the body of Christ, as the people of God in the house of the Lord, that because of Christ, that as we sing praises to your name, uh, that we enter your presence freely. You are here. You are here in this place, just as we sang earlier. Your presence is here. Your grace is here. Your glory is here. And so that we pray that as we open your word, God, would you speak to us? Would you prepare our hearts to receive your word, to be challenged and convicted and comforted, encouraged? Courage spurred on. Even now, people are saved as your word goes out, as the gospel is clear. Would you be glorified? Would you build your church? And, and would you do it all for your glory? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you haven't already, turn to the book of Jonah. Because uh, as you see on the screen, as you, as you saw in that video, we are starting a new series in the book of Jonah. Over the next four weeks, we're going to be going through each scene of this book. You know, it's, it's August, right? It's the end of the summer. Uh, I kind of think it's the best time of the summer, uh, that kind of golden period. But I know uh, the bad news is, right, school's coming like in a week or two. Or maybe that's good news if you're a parent. School's starting back up. Bad news if you're a kid, good news if you're a parent. But that's happening. And so as we head back into the fall, we just really felt that as a church that we really needed to go to like a really uh, uplifting and happy book of the Bible. And so we're going to Jonah. No, it's a bit of a downer. And maybe that's, maybe that's why it's one of my favorite books. Um, but as we turn to the book of Jonah and as we dig into this, I really think it's going to be timely for us as a church, for us individually and us collectively, that the book of Jonah has been described as a prophetic narrative, that there are many books in the Bible that are books of prophecy, books that focus on the message of a prophet, the message that God gives to a person. But in Jonah, the focus isn't necessarily on the message of the prophet, but on the life of the prophet, on the story surrounding the message that God gave to him. 
that that's the genre, right? Like a prophetic narrative. It's kind of like documentaries. Does anyone love documentaries in the room this morning? Got some documentary heads. Love a good documentary. Um, and I, and I, I like them because similarly, you know, the, the focus isn't typically on the, the final product, the art or the message or the legacy of a person, but all the surrounding circumstances and people and factors and things that made that person who they were or led to that work of art or led to that event, whatever it may be. And in doing that and seeing the behind the scenes and all those sorts of stuff, it gives even greater significance and weights to the message, to the person, to the work of art. Um, you know that one of my favorite bands is a band called Wilco, and there, there was a documentary that came out about the making of one of their best albums. And um, in seeing that, you know, and seeing the process that it took to make this album, that the band almost broke up, that there was all this drama, that they were dropped from their label, and then it led to this thing being released into the world, that seeing all those things gave me a greater affection and appreciation for the band and for the album. And hopefully something similar happens here as we go to the book of Jonah, that with the focus being on the journey, the surrounding factors, the life of Jonah, that it would give greater significance and weight and meaning to the message. And what's the message? The gospel, the gospel, the grace of God, his plan of salvation and redemption. And so as we want that message to be fully on display in the prophetic narrative of Jonah, read with me in Jonah 1, verse one. And if you're there, would you say there? There, all right, we're ready. All right, Jonah 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. And here we're introduced to the the protagonist of the book of Jonah, or maybe more fitting, the anti-hero. And we see the main character, Jonah, son of Amittai. And I love this. Jonah's name means silly, senseless son of faithfulness. And it's fitting because Jonah is a silly and senseless man. But it's also ironic because, um, you know, he wouldn't necessarily be described as a son of faithfulness. He would much more uh, be described as the rebellious prophet. And so there's a irony, attention in his name that he would come to fulfill in both senses. And this prophetic book, it opens like many others. It says, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, that if you look at every prophetic book, just about all of them start with either, now the word of the Lord came to the prophet or a vision came to the prophet. And what would happen in the rest of the book is that this message would be given to its audience that God had called them to. But instead, in the book of Jonah, right, this irony where it's flipped, the word of the Lord came to Jonah and what did he do? He, he ran, he ran from the mission. And not only does he run and refuse his mission, he, he runs far. Um, just throw a little map on the screen just to give, again, weight and significance to Jonah's running. Jonah's in Joppa in a city in Israel and he's called the Nineveh, which would be in modern day Iraq, about 550 miles east of Joppa. But instead he boards a boat for Tarshish, which is, would be modern day Spain, 2,500 miles in the opposite direction. Jonah runs far. Now so far, are we pretty familiar with all of this a little bit? We're pretty familiar with the book of Jonah, aren't we? And my, my encouragement for us today would, the, would be that we wouldn't let the familiarity of the story allow us to check out or to get lost or to say, this one's not for me, I know the story of Jonah. 
That we wouldn't just go through the book of Jonah again and let it stay at, yeah, Jonah ran far away from God. What a dumb guy. Because that's not what it's about. It's, it's about us. And I love how the Bible Project, you know, if you're ever looking for a helpful resource as you're digging into God's word, the Bible Project is an organization that has a ton of great content. But they said this about the book of Jonah, that the book of Jonah holds a mirror up to the reader. And in Jonah, we see the worst parts of our character magnified. So as we come through the story of Jonah, maybe it's like the millionth time that you've heard this story, that we wouldn't get lost in the familiarity, but instead we would allow God to reveal within us the ways that we are similar to Jonah himself. So Jonah runs from God's calling on his life, and the question becomes why, right? Why did Jonah run? And more importantly for us, why, why do we find ourselves running from what God calls us to do? And in those first three verses, just right there, I think we can break it down and see three motives for why Jonah ran. Why does Jonah run? The first reason is this, fear. Jonah's afraid. He's afraid of Nineveh. He's afraid for his life. That Nineveh here is described as this great city, and he's called to prophesy to it. And that word great, it's meant to encompass both great as a big a city, but also as a greatly evil city, that it was a, a bad place. It was a great city, depending on, people speculate, uh, but the population was probably somewhere between one and two million people in Nineveh. It was surrounded by this wall all around that was 100 feet high with 200 feet watchtowers where people would protect the city. The Jonah was afraid to go to this great city and, and bring this message of warning of potential destruction. But it wasn't just a big, uh, intimidating city, it was a big evil city. You know, the Assyrians had this reputation of being gory. Has anyone seen the uh, VeggieTales depiction of the book of uh, Jonah? Classic movie, great songs. If you can remember, the people of Nineveh, they're known as people who would slap people in the face with fishes. It's pretty rude, but reality is like far worse. That the Assyrians, when they were in battle, they would, uh, before they would kill an enemy, they would cut off their arms so that they could shake their hand as they were bleeding out to death. That's, that's some real rated M video game stuff. And Jonah was afraid to go to the city because he was afraid that, you know, he would be the guy whose arm was cut off there. But more than that, it was a big, bad city, but more specifically, it was the Israelites' enemies, right? Nineveh was the biggest threat to Israel's security and survival. And so he's afraid for his life But he's not just afraid of Nineveh and afraid for his life. He's also afraid of his own people, the Israelites. He's afraid for his livelihood. Jonah's introduction here is brief. We don't see much about who he is. And part of that is because the readers would already know who he was. That we see Jonah in another place earlier in the Bible. In 2 Kings 14, Jonah, son of Amittai, is there again with a message of prophecy But that uh, message that he's called to give is that the northern border of Israel would be restored, that there were cities at the northern part of Israel that had been taken under siege by Assyria. And so Jonah prophesied that the borders would be restored, that they would have um, their their place there again. And as a result, uh, he he was popular because of that message. It came true, the border was restored. He was seen as this savior of Israel. And, as a, and yes, so but now he's being called to a quite different message, that the message he's being called to give is not a message of prosper for the people of Israel, but it's a message of grace to the people of Nineveh, 
And so to bring this message to his enemies would not only be unfavorable by his own people, but it would possibly be detrimental to them. Like if the people of Nineveh were spared and saved, then their enemies would be there to take them to war again, and Jonah would potentially be to blame. And with all that fear for his life, for his reputation, what I would say is simply this, that don't we do this often? Allow fear for a variety of reasons to creep up in our heart and to take root And when God calls us to something, we choose not to do it and we run in the other direction because of fear, just like Jonah. And the second motive that Jonah ran from God's calling, not just because of fear, but also likely due to self-righteousness. Self-righteousness. So you see, Jonah didn't just hate, or Jonah didn't just fear the people of Nineveh, he hated them. He hated the people of Nineveh. He was a patriotic nationalist for his people. And God was saying, go to those you hate, go to our enemies, go to the people who are putting your nation under threat and warn them and bring them the gospel ultimately. But in his self-righteousness, he, he wouldn't go. You see, self-righteousness is the certainty that I'm right and I'm superior, that it's, I've got this belief I've got this ideology, I've got this opinion, I've got this group of people that I identify with, I've got this, this thing that I'm passionate about, and because of that, because I identify by that, I believe that I'm better than others. I'm good, they're, they're bad. I've, I've got the right opinion, they, they've got the wrong opinion. In church, there is a danger when the opinions that we have, that we choose to identify tightly to them, so much so that our self-righteousness, believing that we're right, leads us to hate people who believe or feel or think differently. And Jonah's self-righteousness here leads him to run from God's calling. And so as I think about self-righteousness, believing you've got a right, better, superior opinion, I can't help but think of this. This is the right baseball team to cheer for. Number one in the American League Central Division. Sorry, Detroit Tiger fans. But I'm not, just, I'm not gonna hate on the Detroit fans because I want you guys to listen to this sermon. And if we just hate on Detroit sports, or quite honestly talk about sports too much, you're gonna check out. And so what I want you to track with is this. Uh, let me bring out, instead of a Detroit fan, our resident Chicago Cubs fan. Let's give it up for Carolyn Moeller. She led us in worship so strong. Carolyn is probably the number one Cubs fan in our church, and um, I'm a Cubs fan. I'm a Sox fan. You're a Cubs fan. I can't believe those words came from my mouth. Blasphemy. (laughs) And so here's the reality that, you know, the Cubs, they won the World Series, like, what, six years ago after, like, a century of losing? They won one year, and now they're losers again, and... And now the Chicago White Sox, it's our moment. We're first in the division. They're gonna win the World Series this year, like for sure. Um, And I don't wanna be too harsh to Carolyn. She said I was a little harsh last night. Like last night, what I said was I joked to someone that I, sometimes I think I hate the Cubs more than I like the White Sox. But I wouldn't say that because that's too harsh. (laughs) But you know, it's one thing for, you know, me and Carolyn, we are on opposite sides of the line that is Chicago baseball sports fandom. But it's one thing for me to be like, you know what, Carolyn, I like the Sox and you like the Cubs. I don't like the Cubs. It's another thing for me to say that I hate the Cubs. It's another thing for me to say that like, I wish harm upon the Cubs. And when they traded away all their best players the other week, it was like Christmas morning. That'd be crazy to say. That'd be really messed up. 
But then it'd be another thing for me to say, you know what, because of our fandoms, Carolyn, I hate you. I hate you as a person because you're a Cubs fan. You know what, we can't work together anymore. We can't lead the worship ministry, it's not happening. This difference in opinion is so much so that I want nothing to do with you. Absurd, right? Can we give it up for Carolyn for, for helping us out, being our resident Cubs fan? It's a bit silly, but church, for real, don't we do this? Like, based on the hats that we wear, based on the opinions that we have, based on the things that we believe that we're right about, we allow those things to give us a sense of that we're better, that we know best, and we want nothing to do with people who wear different hats, with people who feel differently. And this is what Jonah does here. His self-righteousness leads him to say, because I am on opposite sides of the lines of every sense of ideology, I'm not going to Nineveh. In church, what I would say is that we can't let that happen in the church. You know, Tim Keller in his book, Discovering Jonah, said that a major theme of this book is that God cares how we treat people who are different than us in a way that is respectful, loving, generous, and just. Would we say that we as a church are doing that? That we are treating those who are our absolute enemies and think the opposite of us with respect and love and generosity and justice? Scripture teaches us this. There is no one righteous, not one. You and me, we are not better than other people. And even as Christians, the one we're saved, we're called right but we're called right in Christ alone. We have his righteousness, and we've got no reason to posture ourselves against other people. But instead, would we have the same heart as the Apostle Paul? I love when he said, I'm the chief of sinners. I'm the greatest sinner that I know. And we need to stay at that place. Because if Jonah had viewed himself through that lens, I'm the greatest sinner that I know, then of course I'm gonna go to this sinful people and bring the message of the gospel. Self-righteousness should not inhibit our personal faithfulness to God's calling. But even us as a church, it absolutely cannot waver our commitment to preach the gospel to all people. And Christ's commandment, right? Go and love your neighbor as yourself. Would we not let self-righteousness get in the way of God's calling for us to be those things to all people? And the third reason, Jonah runs from God's mission. And it's really the more overarching reason, right? There's fear, there's self-righteousness, and I think those are kind of lower fruits for this deeper heart issue, which is rebellion. Jonah doesn't agree with God's plan. Jonah doesn't trust in what God is doing by calling him to Nineveh. That on a practical level, we've already identified that Nineveh is this great big bad city and their enemies. Like if Jonah's going there, it's probably ending in death. So he's like, God, this is a bad plan. It's not, it's not gonna work. But not only is this a, 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 a bad plan, it's not gonna work, but on a theological level, it's just a wrong plan. Like Jonah's thinking, God, these are the people that you're supposed to wipe off the face of the earth, but you're calling me to warn and save them? Why? The prophet Nahum, he prophesied that God would destroy Nineveh. So Jonah's thinking, God, that's your, that's your plan. You're, you're done with these people. You want nothing to do with them. That's their future, so I want nothing to do with them. Why, why would I go? Assyria, they're, they're the bad guys. They're evil and violent. We're the Israelites. We're the good guys. We're the chosen people. Why would you have me go to them? And that fear grows into rebellion. 
God, this is a bad plan, it's not gonna work. I'm afraid of what could happen, I'm not gonna do it. God, this is a wrong plan, it's not right. I'm not gonna do it. The self-righteousness grows into rebellion. That Jonah ultimately doubted in this plan the goodness, the wisdom, and the justice of God. And so he rebels, he runs. And don't we do this too? Don't we question God's goodness and wisdom and justice in what he's doing? And so we choose to rebel, to run the other way, to do our own thing, to follow our own plan. What we're functionally believing and saying in that moment is that we believe that God doesn't know what he's doing. And we believe that we know better. Isn't it so easy for us to believe that lie, that we know the best way to do things? Man, I, I believe that lie so often in my life that I think I know better. Like, this is the right way to do things. And just a few uh, weeks ago, my wife Sam and I went on a vacation to Portland, and so we flew to go there. And flying is awesome. I love flying in an airplane. Like, what a privilege to do that. But my least favorite part of flying is that like waiting to board the airplane. Because the thing is, is that when I buy plane tickets, I buy like the absolute cheapest ones. So like with all the groups that board, I'm in group Z. So you're just waiting for like 300 people to board this plane. So it's like group A, group B, group B. And the thing that I hate about this whole process is that somehow when it's time to call group Z, all the group Z people are already in line. Like how did they find the exact perfect time to get in the line so they could be the first group Z person? I wanna be the first group C person. There must be a more efficient way. So in me thinking that this whole system is just so corrupt and unjust and wrong, uh, this last time when we flew, what I tried to do is this, is like when they're having all the groups board, I'm like, Sam, just come follow me. And there's like that, um, that line that here's where you go, here's the line to keep it in. And I'm like, just gonna lean here and wait for them to call group Z so that I'm the first group C person. You know what this led to? A whole lot of like, all right, group C, it's your turn. Someone comes up. I'm like trying to not make eye contact. They're like, excuse me, sir, are you in group C? No, I'm in group Z. What are you doing up here? It's not your turn. Not, not a great plan, is it? And that's what we do, and that's what Joan is doing on such a bigger level. God, God, your plan's bad. This is an inefficient system. This is a wrong way to go. There must be a better way. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna go my own way. Not, not a good plan. One pastor said it this way, that the root of every human problem is our desire to be our own God and to carry out justice in the way that we ourselves are sure is best. Does God know best or do we know best? Jonah runs due to a variety of these motives and we're about at the halfway point of this message. What I would ask you so far is this, are you running from what God has called you to do? whether it is generally the things that God calls believers to be, the light in the world, the hope, loving, kind, good neighbors, or is it more specifically something that God has called you to, that he's impressed upon your heart and you're running? Are you running? And, and what's your motive? Is it fear? You're afraid of what it is. You don't feel like you can do it. Is it self-righteousness? that you think you're better than what God's called you to or who God's called you to? Is it rebellion that you just think it's a bad plan and you wanna go your own way? It's important for us to identify if we're running and why we're running from God's calling, to identify those sinful motives. And I wanna invite you to do that if you haven't already. But as we turn to the rest of the story, I wanna also invite us to see God's response when Jonah runs from the mission. 
So we're gonna see this. When we run, Jonah runs, how does God respond? If we act in rebellion, if we run, what does God do? The first thing we see is this, that when I run from God's calling, he relentlessly pursues. He relentlessly pursues. To put more simply, when we run away from God, he continues to run after us and towards us. And we see this, read with me in verse four. It says, but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid. That's not another baseball team, by the way. Those are sailors. I was confused the first time I read this. The Sox are also better than the Seattle Mariners, by the way, um, in case you were wondering. Back to God's word. Then the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down to the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. So if the captain, the captain came to him and said, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. That when Jonah runs, God relentlessly pursues. When we run, God relentlessly pursues. And we see this in the story. God relentlessly pursues in sending a storm after Jonah. Right, another thing that we're super familiar with. But when we read about the storm here, that sometimes it's easy for us to think of the storm that God sent as God's wrath, as punishment for Jonah's disobedience. But the storm isn't wrath, that's, that's not true. The storm is God's mercy and grace, his relentless pursuit of Jonah, that it's not a punishment for disobedience, that it's an intervention into his rebellion. It's an intervention in relentless pursuit of Jonah's rebellious heart. And when we run from God's calling, you know, in this case, he it says the Lord sent the storm. I think more often in our life, maybe God doesn't outright send the storm, but he allows difficult circumstances to happen. And he allows those difficult circumstances to happen in order for us to see our hearts. He's in relentless pursuit of our hearts and he wants us to see our rebellion. He wants us to grow miserable when we chase our bad plan for us to see that our plan is bad, that our motives are sinful, that we're running from what he's called us to do. That the reality is that storms in our life can either shipwreck us or they can drive us back to the grace of God. That the difficult circumstances in our life, the storms, they can teach us, they can grow us. And as I think about storms that God sends in relentless pursuit of us or of Jonah, I can't help but think about, we've had a few storms this week in West Michigan, haven't we? A Little bit of rain, a little bit of wind. Uh, I, I read this that as a result of the storms on Tuesday, that over 200,000 consumer energy customers didn't have power all the way through Wednesday night. Not great, right? Was that any of you guys? Did anyone lose power this week? A few people, okay. Um, Emmanuel, our production director, he's hanging somewhere in the back doing his thing. Um, you know, he had, his power went out on Tuesday and it didn't come back until Friday morning. Brutal. Dude's got a, 10-month-old infant at home. His parents were in town from out of the country. Power's out for three days. I'm like, dude, how are you doing with that? How are you handling that? Are you just like miserable and angry about it and just on the phone on the customer service line for Consumers Energy all day being like, where the heck is my power? It's like, no, it's been fine. Like, it's not that big of a deal. We've got our food in a cooler on ice. We're still just sleeping in the house. I mean, it's a little inconvenient that we can't charge our phones, but no big deal. I'm like, dude, great response. It's not shaking him at all. If that's me, I'm not handling that great. I'm upset. I'm like on that customer service line all day. Where the heck is my power? Why do you keep moving back the estimate? <laughs> and I would say this, church, that our response to storms, 
reveals a lot about our hearts. It reveals a lot about where we're at. And so there was power that went out, but there was also, anyone have any uh, flooding basements this week as a result of the rain? A few? I did. But I was preparing this message, so I handled it okay. Better than usual. God was using his word so that I would respond better to the storm. But I would say about that, you know, and not a big deal, you know, that happens. But even thinking about in that with flooding basements that God can sometimes use the storms to come to reveal problems, to reveal things that need to change, to show us where there's cracks in the foundation and to show us where our identity is misplaced, that our beliefs are misplaced, that we're believing lies. And God is in relentless pursuit of Jonah. But Jonah, where's, where's Jonah right now? Just sleeping, just sleeping in the bottom of the boat. I was commending Emo's chill response to the storms earlier, but there's a big difference, isn't there, between peace and trust in God in a storm and just straight up ignoring the storm? Like Jonah's sleeping in the bottom of the boat, unaware of what's happening around him, unaware of the fact that it is caused by his sin. And there, there's a difference there. So read with me as God continues to pursue Jonah's heart in verse seven. And the sailors, they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation and where do you come from? What is your country? What people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you've done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that the great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. But here we see that God is, continues to be in relentless pursuit of Jonah's heart. And we see this in a few ways, that ultimately I think God is using the storm, the sailors, the questions, all these things to draw out Jonah's heart, that he would see his rebellion, that he would see his sinful motives, that he would, the truth would come to light, that his sin and the lies that he's believing would become clear to him. You know, God uses the casting of the lots to reveal that Jonah's the cause of the storm. Like the truth comes to light and, and you know, Jonah was hiding while he's on the boat. Like I, I just kind of imagine like they first get on the boat and they're like, Jonah, why are you here? He's like, oh, I just thought it'd be good to go on a little cruise, vacation. And then later the storm comes and they're like, oh yeah, you know, I'm just running away from God, a very specific thing that God told me to do. Okay, kind of lied about that, kind of covered that up. And then these questions, they ask Jonah, you know, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? I think that was probably a rhetorical question. And they're like, whose are you? And ultimately what I would say is that in Jonah's response, what we see is a shallow and hollow response. We see that there's a shallow sense that he kind of strings along words that are true and accurate, but does he really mean them in his heart? Like, yeah, I'm, I'm a prophet, I'm for God, I, I fear and follow him. Do you, Jonah? Are you, are you doing that? That it's a shallow and hollow response. He doesn't sound so sorry and sincere. It's kind of like 
it's a bit of a touchy sub subject, but you know, here in cancel culture, like, don't you love the thing that happens now? Like a celebrity says or does something that's like offensive and wrong, and then like a day later, there's that obligatory apology. Like, is anyone else just tired of like apology videos on YouTube from vloggers being like, oh yeah, sorry, I messed up. I'm a bad person, but I'm learning and growing and figuring things out. Like, very, okay, very sincere. It's not like millions of dollars was on the line or anything. It's not like your livelihood was on the line. And that's, that's Jonah here, this shallow, hollow response, but God is in relentless pursuit of our heart when we run from his calling. He's, he's working, he's, he's pursuing his heart, and we see this as we continue the story. Read with me where we left off in um, verse 14. Therefore, the sailors, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, Yahweh, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And here we see a second way in which God responds to our running from his calling. When I run from God's calling, he accomplishes his purposes. He's relentlessly pursuing Jonah's rebellious heart but even despite the fact that Jonah won't own up, he's not repentant, he's not taking responsibility, God accomplishes his purposes. And I think we see this really in three ways. That first, God accomplishes his purposes in saving pagans. That at the beginning of the story, God, is, God calls Jonah to go and to rescue pagans. And Jonah says, I want no part of it. But in his refusal to save pagans, what does God do? He saves pagans. And we can see this in the sailor's response that we can be pretty confident this is genuine saving faith. First, because they address the name of the, the Lord their God. Earlier, they're talking about all these other gods. But here when they talk, it's, O oh Lord, all capitalized Lord, Yahweh. They're addressing God by name. And so we can believe that's saving faith. We can believe that too, because, you know, it's, isn't it typical for people to cry out to God in the middle of the storm? Like, Lord, please save me. Please rescue me from these difficult circumstances. And then life kind of gets a little better in that whole, you know, God, if you would just fix this, then I will follow you. But then the following part kind of doesn't happen. But here with the sailors, we see after the storm is gone, they make a sacrifice of worship to the Lord. That's true faith, professing Christ, not just in the face of the storm, but when the storm passes. Jonah says, I'm not gonna save pagans, and God says, I'm gonna save pagans. Scottish theologian Sinclair Ferguson, he has a book about the book of Jonah called Man Overboard, and he writes this, God uses us for his glory, and yet our hearts are not in tune with his. That even when we run and rebel and say we won't, God will do what he wants to do. God will save. When Christians have a bad reputation in our country, God will save. And we see that God saves and does what he wants to do, but we also see that God accomplishes his purposes in moving and changing and working in, in, in Jonah's heart. That I, I would say what we see here in these verses isn't quite repentance, but there's beginnings of conviction and his rebellion is coming to an end. You know, when Jonah says, just throw me off the boat, guys, is, is that submission? Is it Jonah saying, God, I'll do whatever you want me to do? Or is that like a despair, God, I give up? I think it's probably somewhere in the middle that he's starting to make better choices, that his motives are changing. And we see this in his response when he says, throw me off. He says, for your, for your sake, for you, because the storm has come upon you. 
that there's no reference of God, but Jonah at the very least is beginning to see how his sin is hurting and negatively affecting the people around him. And so there's movement. If he started at contempt for the pagans, he's moved to pity for how he's hurt them. You know, you're the ones who are dying because of me. I should be dying for you. God is accomplishing his purpose in working in Jonah's heart. And I hope that's even happening now, right now to you, that there's beginnings of conviction and the end of your rebellion would become as God's word is going forth. And God accomplishes his purpose. We see this in the last verse of the first scene of Jonah, our last verse for today. Read with me in verse 17. It says, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. That when I run from God's calling, he accomplishes his purposes, and he does this here because at the beginning of the story, he says, Jonah, go to Nineveh and bring my message. Jonah says, I won't. But now he's in this fish, and I won't give away too much because we're gonna go over it in the next few weeks, but he's gonna go to Nineveh. God will accomplish his purposes. There will be a message. There will be repentance. There will be more rebellion, but God will accomplish his purposes. And um, in the middle of your notes, there's that big idea that's been left blank, and maybe that's been frustrating you, so here it is if you've been waiting. The big idea is that running from God's grace is running into God's grace grace. That here in the story of Jonah, we see that when Jonah runs from God's mission, from God's calling, from God's message, ultimately from God's grace, whether giving it to others or receiving it, when he runs from God's grace, he is confronted with God's grace, that God relentlessly pursues, that God saves others around him, that when he runs from God's grace, he is running straight into the grace of God. And isn't that the truth and the message of all of history? That God made man, and man in the Garden of Eden ran from the grace of God, ran from God's calling, the first step of rebellion, taking the fruit and saying, I'm my own God. God, I know you have a plan, you have a way, but my plan's better. And eating of the fruit and running from God And that playing out through humanity as humanity continued to run from God, but was repeatedly confronted with the grace of God, God relentlessly pursuing their hearts, God accomplishing his purpose even in the midst of sin. That I love the book of Jonah because the book of Jonah is about an Israelite, a chosen person of God who, who rejects the Lord. And it's filled with a pagan, unsaved people, the enemies of God who turn and repent and embrace God, that in the face of God's chosen people rebelling, God continues to confront with his grace, so much so that as God's people continued to rebel and they continued to run, that God sent his son to come and to live the perfect life, that Jesus came and he, he, he ran not from God, but he ran to the cross. He ran to the cross for us so that our running, our rebellion would come to an end for all time that you and me, that we would no longer question the goodness and wisdom of justice of God, but so clearly see his perfect love and perfect purpose and perfect plan and perfect purpose for us in the cross. That God in his love sent his son to die on the cross and to rise again in victory so that we would die to running from God and live to running to God and for God. And I hope that you would make that choice today, that you would stop running from God, whatever that looks like for you, that as we come to a close in a moment here, um, the best way that I can think of it, like as I was preparing preaching, I'm like, you know what? We always tell stories about our kids and it's just a really easy way to do it. And I just think about with our son Shepherd as a toddler, you know, how practical is this that so often I find myself having this conversation, 
Shepherd, come here, do this, runs away. Shepherd, come here, do this. No, I don't wanna. Rebellion, questioning my plan. But repeatedly I respond to that. I, I try to, I'm not perfect with it. But with God's grace, confronting with the grace of God, like, shepherd, hey, do you believe that I want what's best for you? Yes. Then do what I'm asking you to do. Shepherd, who's the boss? You and mom. Yeah, God placed us in authority over you to care for you and to teach you and to raise you. So what we're asking you to do, you need to do it. Shepherd, do you know that what you're doing is wrong, that it's sinful, that it's hurtful to other people? Yeah, I do. So what do you wanna say? And now we're kind of in that in-between where like sometimes we have to be like, say sorry. And sometimes he's like, I apologize, will you please forgive me? And that you and me, Jonah, maybe Jonah more than us, hopefully, but we act like toddlers, don't we? Like God, God's like, hey, you, come here, do this. We're like, no, I got a better plan for my life. I don't like your plan, I wanna do my own thing. I wanna have my own fun. I know what's best, I know what's right. And God's like, why are you running away? Don't you believe that I know what's best for you? Don't you believe that I care for you? Don't, don't you know that I want you to be happy? Don't you know that I'm over you, I'm your authority? Would you stop running and would you run into my arms, into my grace, into my love and care for you? But here's the truth, church, that God will accomplish his purposes. He will make all things right at the end of time. But my question for you today is, will you be a part of it? Will God do what he wants to do despite you? Because you run in the other direction, but he continues to do what he wants to do. Or will you experience the blessing and the joy and the life and the purpose that is found in running for God? So as we come to a close, I'm just impressed and thinking of the words of Hebrews 3 that says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in rebellion. That in a few moments as we leave this place, you will go out, there are two choices that you can make. You can continue in your running from God, running in your own way, hardening your heart in rebellion, just like we saw Jonah do, or you can make the choice to say, I'm gonna stop running. God, you've confronted me with your grace. You've shown me that there's a better way. You've shown me that you know best. So I'm gonna do what you called me to do. So I just wanna invite you to bow your heads as we just close our time. We're gonna sing in a moment, but I just wanna give you a, a few moments to reflect and consider how to respond. And if you have your notes, there's a blank uh, area at the bottom if it's helpful for you to write or maybe take notes in your phone or maybe just think inwardly. But I just have a few questions for us to consider and then we'll respond in worship. My first question is this, what are you running from? What has God called you to that you're running from? What is God impressing upon your heart that you're running from and saying, I don't wanna do it. I'm... What sin is God calling you to stop running to and it's causing you to run from him? What, what is it? What are you running from? The second question is this, why are you running? What are the sinful motives in your hearts that are driving you to run from God's calling? Is it fear? Are you afraid? Is it self-righteousness? You believe you're better than it? Is it rebellion? You think you have a better plan than God and you just wanna go your own way? Why are you running? What is God allowing in your life right now that is his way of relentlessly pursuing you? What are the storms that God is allowing in your life right now to relentlessly pursue you? 
What are the situations, the circumstances, the stresses in your life that you view as the problem, but in fact, they're the very thing that God wants to use to get a hold of your heart and your attention and to change the direction of your life? What are the storms? Who is your running hurting? Who is your running from God's calling negatively affecting that God wants to instead use you to positively affect and bless and save? Who are you hurting that God wants to use you to bless? Is it your neighbors? Is it your spouse? Is it your children? Is it your siblings? Is it your extended family? Is it your church? Is it your small group? Is it your coworkers? Who are you hurting that God wants to use you to bless? And the last question is this, will you right now make the choice to stop running from God's calling on your life? Will you recognize that you've been running? Will you surrender? Will you choose to run to and with His grace? And as you weigh through those questions, let me pray for you and then we'll sing. Father, we come before you now. Just like we said at the start, God, we open your word. May we stand under it and may we stand upon it. And as your word goes out, would you convict? Would you impress on our hearts? Would you move? Would you call us? Would you change us? God, that in one way or another, we have been running from what you've called us to. But right now in this place, we recognize that you know best, you want best, you're using it all because or despite of us. And right now, we wanna choose to stop running in fear and self-righteousness and rebellion and run to and with and for you. God, help us to do that. Help us to surrender. We pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.